Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. This is the second episode of the fourth season. That's pretty cool. And we are glad to be back. This uh, season is being called the Fall of Democracy because uh, it's the fall and we're going to talk about democracy. But we're also concerned that democracy globally is, um, let's use some churchy language, it's backsliding and we need to, uh, we need to pray for it. Um, but also <laughs> there's things we need to do. And that's, that's why we call it Christian ethics. We're going to do something about it. Jesus expects us to do things, to be actors in the world not just prayers. So, uh, this episode, we've already set up what we're doing this season. So, David, would you give us a sense of, could you define democracy for us? Let's make sure we all know what we're talking about um, in two ways. I, I want to know how you use the term democracy, and then could you quickly respond to the Facebook comments that were seconds after the announcement of the book saying America is not a democracy. Right. Um, so here is a definition um, from Yale political scientist Bruce Russert. A democracy is a political system in which nearly everyone can vote. Elections are freely contested. The chief executive is chosen by popular vote or by an elected parliament and civil rights and civil liberties are substantially guaranteed. So um, my summary, a democracy is a political system in which the people choose their leaders and can replace them, and in which the civil rights and freedoms of all citizens are protected by law. So democracy uh, is rule of the people under the rule of law. Here's a longer definition that I quote from political scientist David Koizis. He says, the shared characteristics of Western style democracies are a universal franchise for adult citizens, equal franchise power, that is every vote counts the same, majority rule, competitive elections, the right to stand for public office, freedom of speech and of the press, rights charters that aim to protect core citizen liberties and minority rights, and the rule of law embodied in a constitution. Um, I would also say that, uh, so democracy in this sense enshrines the the principle of majority rule through voting, um, creates uh, processes of electing and then holding accountable leaders at every level, um, seeks to disperse power away from one person or a small group to a larger community of leaders, ultimately accountable to people, and corrects for the problem of majority bias or uh, of misuse of power by creating human by creating civil rights charters and the rule of law to protect the rights of minorities or even of the one person against the powerful corporation or the powerful person. That's democracy. And could you respond to here's this is a meme that I see frequently. Democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting about what's for dinner. Um, That's too cynical. If you have 
if you have the rule of law and, and civil rights protections. So if democracy is being done properly, the sheep is protected. Yes, the sheep is protected. If the wolves decide to dine on the sheep, they go to jail. Do we, you and I, live in a democracy? Yes. Um, the, but it's not a perfect democracy because, because of kind of some structural flaws, both in our history and in our constitution. But it is, it is a far sight better than what's happening, say, in China or Russia or Afghanistan. Is that, and that difference matters. Yeah. Looking at the contemporary political landscape of the world, do you think there's anyone doing it better than us? That's um, a bit of a surprise question. I think that some of the European countries are doing it better than us because I think some of the nuances of the parliamentary system um, are sometimes an improvement over the way our Congress works. Um. Also, because of when you have multiple parties, you're less likely to be polarized in like mm. this binary that we're stuck in. Yeah, like we forget as Americans looking at British politics that there's like a dozen parties that well, have to right make now, coalitions. There's three, main, there's three main parties, but if you, uh, you know, or two main parties and then a, a smaller one, but but that has changed. Um, the fact that we've gotten stuck with two kind of sclerotic um, parties. Um, that hate each other and that are roughly equally balanced is, is a real unfortunate contingent historical development. Didn't have to go that way. Mm. I would say, so the polarization of the binary is something that is not, not good for us. Some of the 18th century features of our constitution, like the way the Senate is set up and the way the electoral college is set up are not real good. Um, And we've also, our constitution was made very difficult to amend. So, changes that we all might benefit from or most of us would benefit from are very hard to pass so there's tweaks um that are needed but but there's also an international observers who look at countries and measure them by objective shared criteria would say that you know we're still one of the world's leading democracies um and that's not a small thing right excellent so how do you respond to the folks that jump on your social media and decry your title and your thesis because America is not a democracy. Um, we are a public. I would say that it's silly, but I did address <laughs> that in, in the book. On page 140 to 142, I pick up the accusation that the U.S. is not a democracy, but it's a republic. And I, I went back actually to the Constitution and to the Federalist Papers um, which is kind of the authoritative, the most authoritative commentary on the Constitution. It is true that the Constitution in Article 4, guarantee, quote, guarantees to every state in this union a Republican form of government, small r. Um, the Federalist Papers, written by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay, say this. In a republic, the people delegate power to representatives that they elect rather than attempting direct democracy, which everyone gathers to debate and to decide. And the advantage of a republic is that you can entrust leadership to especially wise and discerning citizens. <laughs> you could. <laughs> like, uh, well, you can think of some people, right? Um, 
and it enables the governance of a larger number of people and a greater extent of territory than would be possible in a direct democracy. So really all the Federalist says is essentially that a republic can be scaled up. It's representative democracy rather than direct democracy. Mm -hmm. We're too all big, this, right? We're too big. Uh, you can't you can't do direct democracy in any community over like, well, a hundred people, maybe. Um, which is one of the you know, even in a church, and I uh, in the book I talk a lot about church democracy. Now we're Baptists. Even, yeah, in, even in a Baptist church, um, leaders are elected to represent people while there's also moments where everybody votes and decides, right? Mm -hmm. Um so we have what's sometimes called a mixed system of government. That is, there are elements of popular, everybody has a voice. And then there are elements in which decisions are made by people that we elect. And then um, there are some decisions that are in the hands of just one person, the president. But all levels of government are accountable to the people. And that accountability is visible through impeachment or through elections. Right. So. So the trope that we're not a democracy we're a republic is it's sophism it's just it's not relevant is it a misunderstanding of terms it's a misunderstanding of terms or a deliberate manipulation of terms because what some people would like right now is to say okay let's call ourselves a christian republic in which um the presupposition is christian commitments on the part of um, the leaders and the constitutional order itself. And so, so in other words, the people as a whole don't govern, but only the representatives who share the requisite theological beliefs. And that at that point, you're heading in the direction of theocracy, not democracy. Well, can, as, as Christians seeking the kingdom of God, can you help us understand why, like, there's, Christian nationalism is sort of a pejorative now, um, but right. can you tell me why Christian nationalism or theocracy isn't what the church should want? Because it tramples on the rights of other people who don't share the specific version of Christian convictions that are that would be enshrined as official and authoritative. Um, because uh, of a long history of of um, Christian, officially Christian nations torturing and murdering and imprisoning those believed to be heretics. Um, because it only looks appealing to those whose particular version of Christianity gets to be the one in charge. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw that in the religious wars of Europe and, and like yep. uh, the civil wars in England. Do yeah. the Protestants get to kill the Catholics or do the Catholics get to kill the Protestants? Depends on who's in charge at that time. Five years from now, uh, the other group is killing and the other group is, is, is on the run, right? See, one of the arguments of the book is we've forgotten the lessons of history. We've forgotten about all of that. At least some people have. Flirting with theocracy, flirting with Christian nationism, which I think is actually a better phrase. It's hmm. more awkward, but... Christian, we want to be a Christian nation ruled by nice, strong, white Christian men who were born here, who are the ones who have the right to be in charge here. That's what's really going on. With who that. all have the same haircut. Who all have the same haircut. Uh, um, 
we've forgotten why Christians as long as 500 years ago began turning against that. Too much blood in the streets, too much injustice, not just to our group of dissenters, but to every other group of dissenters. Not good for the state, not good for the churches. And both of us being part of the Baptist tradition, our, our tradition is intimately a part of that disestablishmentarian uh, movement, right? Yes. In fact, you wouldn't have uh, the ratification of the Constitution without Baptist support in 1789. So, but Baptists, a lot of Baptists have forgotten that history. I don't think it's relevant anymore because cultural despair and negative reaction, reactionary politics, sweeps aside all the lessons of history unless we try to push back against it, which I'm trying to do with this book. Well, how about this? Here's a scary word for a lot of our Baptist friends liberalism. Can you talk about what it means to be a liberal democracy um, and John Locke and libertarianism? Yes. Um, liberalism is a word that has two fundamentally different meanings that, I, that the book has to deal with because it's dealing with this subject. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the more familiar meaning, and that is... Um, liberal meaning leftist or progressive values that's the word that most conservative christians don't like we're against those woke liberals okay so picture that okay um i in the book i call that left liberalism okay classical liberalism is an enlightenment product often associated with names like John Locke, the, the British uh, political uh, philosopher, it has to do with ideas like freeing the individual um, to pursue his or eventually his or her um, personal vision of the good life, right? Um, restricting the power of government uh, over uh, over people's personal beliefs, convictions, and practices as far as possible, limiting the power of government, um, creating an environment in which individual enterprise and business formation can flourish, and essentially elevating um, personal freedom and self-direction within the limits of the broad limits of the of the common good. So privacy, freedom, the personal pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of wealth if one wants to, um, private property, um, individualism. These are some associated terms. Freedom of opinion, freedom of conscience, freedom of thought, elevating human freedom in this way, which generally understood to involve ending the marriage between church and state, providing religious liberty, protections for citizens, ending religious persecution or prosecution, right? Uh, granting maximum personal freedom and not trying to enforce kind of morals codes on people based on a religious vision and limiting the role of government essentially and fundamentally to security concerns, organizing and arranging the structure so that economic life can flourish and otherwise kind of getting out of the way. 
So okay. we should when we think of the word liberal in this context, we should go we should jump to thinking of like liberty. Liberty, personal freedom, limited government. Yeah. And as broad a range of of toleration of diversity of conviction and diversity of lifestyle as is possible within the framework of the common good. I remember on the, at the top of the newspaper in Jackson, Tennessee, that I used to write for, there was a, um, every day there was a quote from Voltaire. I may, it goes something like this. I may disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Mm -hmm. That's liberalism in that sense. It was, uh, it was a reaction to all of the excesses and brutalities and mistakes of coercive, dictatorial, and religiously dominated states. And these ideas were very much at play in the forming of American democracy. Um, they were also at play in the, the French Revolution, though the French Revolution had a more of an anti-religious edge. The American Revolution had a religious toleration edge, mm -hmm. like, uh, we're not going to have an officially Christian state, but y'all have at it. We're not going to tax people to support your your religion, but go for it. Do what you want as long as you're not like sacrificing children or something, right? Mm -hmm. We're not going to kick the Baptists out of Massachusetts and make them start Rhode Island. Right. Not after 1789. Yeah. So um, that was the American. That was the American idea. Now, some people today say that this vision is endangered on all sides that the the left liberals are illiberal often in the to the extent to which they are enforcing their moral vision on everybody like if you have the wrong belief about something and they can come at you they will that's like cancel culture right stuff like that right um the the conservative side is afraid or says often that that is actually the country that we live in. We do not live in a liberal democracy anymore. We live in an illiberal, left liberal, woke totalitarianism. And you and if you listen to certain kinds of news sources, that's what you hear. That's really been the message of Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign. Right? Right. And so, so when you deal with the woke totalitarians, you have to push back. But now, I don't agree that that's exactly where we are, though I do see some shards of truth in the critique. Um, and I try to deal with that in the book, which will surprise some people. But partly because that is the diagnosis on the right, some people are thinking the, the cure is not a return to liberal democracy. It's an illiberal right wing establishment of some type, whether it's fascist or Christian strongman or traditional Catholic or whatever, neo-evangelical, because, well, if liberalism is dead and it's a battle of illiberalisms, let's let our illiberalism win. Our side should win because we're right and they're wrong. This, by the way, is one reason why every election seems to be an apocalyptic cosmic struggle. Mm -hmm. Every, I mean, how many times have I heard? This is the most important election of our life. You got it. The most important election of our lifetime. I've heard that since about 1980. Every election that I have had the opportunity to vote in 
I've been told that. That there are cosmic consequences for how you vote. And if we get this one wrong, the country is done. So, in the book, I, I say a couple of things. Christians supported democracy before there was Enlightenment liberalism. This is important. The Baptists and the Anabaptists, for example, before John Locke, were, were moving towards, you know why we need to have democracy? Because you can't entrust that kind of power to one person. Because power corrupts. And because the Bible teaches against tyranny. And you know why we need democracy? Because people's rights need to be protected, and the only way that can happen is if they have a voice in their own government. Um, and we need, you know why we need democracy? Because we need for the poor to have better, um, better uh, access to having their own needs met, and that can only happen if they have a voice in government. So as far back as Richard Overton in the mid-17th century or the... Puritans in the late 16th century, they were saying, in principle, what we need is a more is a democratized form of rule. Even if they thought it should be a Christian democracy, as the Puritans did, they wanted it democratized. The Baptists went further and said, you know, actually, we need we need a state in which, <laughs> um, which you have actual religious liberty because you can't trust any of these Christian groups to be the one in charge. Because they're going to end up suppressing others. We've experienced that time and again. So let's just get government out of that game. So that's Christian democratic thinking as far back as the 16th and early 17th century. This kind of enlightenment, individualist, maximizing freedom liberalism was a little bit of a later idea. But both of them were reacting negatively to state church marriages and the suppression of people's freedom in the name of God and country together. So whether you come at it from the Christian side or from the liberal Lockean side, there are good reasons why we ended up with the kind of democratic structures that we did. Last thing you asked, what is a democracy? A democracy is a culture with norms in which we act in certain ways so as to preserve the system for the next generation. It's things like, um, respecting the results of elections and not casting doubt on whether they were fair or rigged. Peaceful transfer of power without violence. Um, not abusing the rules of the game. Not threatening the media or political opponents. It's things like that. As soon as people cross those lines, they're threatening democratic culture and weakening the bonds of democracy. So democracy is a set of political arrangements. It's also a culture. And in the book, I describe various ways to measure the health of a democracy. I've got several pages of bullet points in the area of political rights and civil liberties. A healthy democracy looks like this, this, and this. And uh, a, health, a democracy that is backsliding looks like that, that, and that. And that all needs to be discussed as well. But, but you'll have to buy the book. You have to buy the book. But you know, one thing I would say, Jeremy, is working on this, and people who've been reading the book along with me and talking with me about it have been saying, you know, I haven't thought seriously about democracy in my whole life. We took it for granted. Mm -hmm. It was just always there. Every two years you go to the polls. Every four years you get a president or a new president. 
the results of the re of the election are, are are respected. The the defeated person goes to the inauguration and blesses the one who's coming after him or her. All of that up for grabs now. This is new. And when, a, as I say in the book, you don't know how much you value something until it's threatened sometimes. Right. And that's where I think we find ourselves. Friends, thank you for listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. We are thrilled to have you with us in this conversation, and we want to hear from you. You can find us on social media, basically all of them, um, and our respective websites. They're easy to remember because they're our names, davidpgushy.com and revjeremyhall.com. We look forward to corresponding with you, and uh, we'll be back soon with more of the fall of democracy. Dun, dun, dun. All right, awesome. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you soon.